Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that we have in this time of peace where we can meet in this very unique place to preach our unique message. Clearly, this is a time of peace. Father, as we're about to open your word, we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was asked yesterday when the sermon was finished by one person, I'm quite sure somebody else had the question, Brother Andre, what did that sermon have to do with the sanctuary? And I thought, that's a good question. The thing is, every sermon I talk about is in the sanctuary. Every teaching is in the sanctuary. What we have to learn to do is keep the glasses on as we're reading through the passages. Does that make sense? I don't have time to decode yesterday's sermon to help you see how it was in the sanctuary, but I would ask that you ask God to teach you how to see the Bible through the lens of the sanctuary. Today, we're going to cover the subject matter, the everlasting covenant. Now, there is no way that I'm going to finish this sermon, so clearly, you're just going to have to take the principles, go back and study yourself. Amen? And so let's look together at this quotation. This quotation says, the great controversy between the prince of life and the prince of darkness has been going forward, strengthening with each successive generation. Severe indeed has been the conflict waged between right and wrong, between truth and error, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Truth has fought against error and error against truth. The conflict has existed for thousands of years. It's almost like, my friends, when you think about it, I'm only 38 years old, about to be 39 in a couple of days, but I've only been here on planet Earth this amount of time, but I was born into a war. I was born into a conflict, and I necessarily didn't choose to be in this conflict, but the reality is we are in this conflict. And this conflict is between truth and error, between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. So my mind likes to do a little analyzations. I like to make my own little charts, my own little brain, because I am a uh, see things in picture form. So here's what I did. I put a little chart up. You know, Revelation chapter 12 talks about the woman, and it talks about the dragon. Everybody knows that story? The woman in Bible prophecy represents the church, and the dragon is the devil and Satan. And these two powers have been at conflict with each other. And remember, the prophet says from the beginning of time, this has been going on, and it's going on all the way to our present day, right? So I put a little chart up for myself. That's the beginning of time. This is the, this is the end of time, okay? You see it? Everybody following? And then I, 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 I put here Adam and Eve, the church in Eden, and I put the serpent. Constantly, there has been a struggle between two powers. And then I put progressively here, the altar church. Now, the reason why I call it the altar church is because before sin, there was no altar. When sin comes into the picture, now God requires a sacrifice. And so now the altar church, if you will, is put into place, and Abel and his descendants, Noah and Abraham, these people had to worship at an altar. 
And there was a group contrary to that. We have the descendants of Cain, Cain and his descendants, Noah's descendants, Nimrod, etc. These persons that were born thereafter were in contrariness, if I could use that as a word, to the altar church. There's always been a conflict. And then after that, we had the wilderness church, Solomon's temple, and Zerubbabel's temple. And, you, you know, you talk about the children of Israel, and then you have the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Perizzites. You know all those names in the Bible that you read through, but like, Perizzites? Parasites? <laughs> the Hittites and the Canaanites and Malachites. All these nations were contrary to God's chosen people. You see the conflict constantly throughout the Scripture. You have the Assyrians and the Egyptians, the Chaldeans, the, the, the Syrians, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Babylonians, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. It goes on. And then you have the Holy Place Church, the church that exists during what we consider the Dark Ages. That church is contradicted by, as you can see there, papalism. There's always been a contrast, a war between two ideas. In other words, I didn't make this up. These names that I have on the screen literally historically have been proven. There's always been a conflict. And now what we have? We have the Most Holy Place Church. We call it the Remnant Church. And now, my friends, we're going to investigate throughout the scriptures the purpose and reason for this last church. But in order to understand the purpose for this last church, we must understand from the very beginning. So here we have it. Church above are the guardians of the covenant. I didn't rob that from any movie line. I saw somebody laugh a little bit. This is not guardians of the galaxy, although technically we are. We are the guardians of the covenant. And my friends, before we leave this place today, you're going to understand why that's so important. And then the group below, of course, is the group of the rise of the rebellion. This is the rebellion. These are the persons and individuals that have been in contrariness to God. So we have a choice. At the end of the day, we have a choice. You've got to choose who you're going to serve. There is no middle ground. There is no time out. Lord, let me get it together first. Devil, stay here. Satan, stay here. God, stay here. Satan, stay here. There's none of that. There's none of that. So let's study. Do you guys like snakes? There's a few crazy people that like snakes. One of, my, one of my good friends, he's getting married next weekend. He loves snakes. Yeah, Brother Ryan loves snakes. It looks, I mean, when you look at it without knowing what it's about, the, the colors look nice. Then you look at the head, you're like, nah, that's not good. <laughs> it's not good. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise its heels. Now, we're going to dissect this. You're going to see on the screen here, I have Satan. Satan has a seed, because it says thy seed and her seed. So Satan has a seed, and the woman has a seed. And there's a, there's, that, that, there's a covenant, a promise that has been made in the verse, and I'm going to highlight it here for you. The covenant says, God will put enmity between the woman and the serpent. God will put enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. 
the seed will crush the head of the serpent. And number four, the serpent will bruise the heel. When will that happen? When will that happen? Again, I just want you to get it in your mind because I'm not really going to preach, preach because I don't have the voice to do it. But I want you to see, notice, who is going to put the enmity between the woman and the serpent? God is. Who is going to put the enmity between the seeds of the two entities? So who's responsible? God is. Now, I pause there to make the point even more clear. Back in the day, I used to love, I used to love hip-hop and R&B. You know, I don't know if you know anything about hip-hop R&B. I used to love Jodeci, Black Street, New Edition. Maybe that's a little bit before your time, I'm not sure. But I used to love all that stuff, and God did something for me. He put a hatred in my heart for it. Before, it was a little harder. It'd be like, okay, I'm not going to listen to Mary J. Blige today. And I'll try my best. Not listening, not listening, not listening. Then I couldn't, I couldn't help it. But Mary J., I mean, I love Mary J., you know what I'm saying? She's smooth. But when I fell in love with Jesus, he began to put inside of me something that made me hate that which I used to, that's supernatural. That's supernatural. And what God's people must learn to do is depend upon the supernatural to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. So often, my friends, we seek to live righteously without the righteous one. Can't do it. But let's go a little bit further. We're studying right now. So remember, there's this enmity that's supposed to be put between the two. So notice here. This is the, what is this, my friends? This is the sanctuary. When you leave this place, if you have not spent one month straight, two hours a day, studying the sanctuary, I suggest you do that. Make it a hyper-focus. Like, make it like, my devotions are going to be about the sanctuary. My sleep time is going to be about the sanctuary. When I'm driving in the car, I'm going to be listening about the sanctuary. Any sermon I listen to is going to be about, I need to know about the sanctuary. The sanctuary is the expression of God's plan to end the sin problem. Take the time to make this a part of your very thinking. Put the lens on so you can see things through God's lenses. So here's the sanctuary. And I want you to notice something about this. And I'm going to show you something. Numbers chapter 1 verse 50 says, But thou shalt appoint the Levites over, what's it say? Notice that the tabernacle is called the tabernacle of the testimony. Don't miss it. Notice the next part. It says, Exodus 25, 20 says, I mean 25, 30 says, And thou shalt set upon the table uh, shewbread, before me, how often? Always. always. So there's a table that is set before God always. Let's go a little bit further. Notice what the scripture says here. Exodus 27, 20. And thou shalt command the children of Israel that they bring thee pure oil, olive, beaten for the light, <coughs> to cause the lamp to burn how often? Always. Do you see the word always being repeated? Table shewbread always before me. The, the light is to burn always. Notice Exodus 27, 21. In the tabernacle of the congregation, without the veil, 
which is before the, what's it say? Testimony. Aaron and his son shall order it from evening to morning before the Lord. So before the testimony, the tent is called the tent of testimony. Stay with me. Notice this. Exodus 30 verse 1. And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shittim wood shalt thou make it, and thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the... Notice how the Bible repeats itself. It's repeating itself. It's trying to get you to know. When mommy, when mommy repeats herself, you, she is expecting you to remember. Is that right? Notice. Notice this. Exodus 30, 36. And thou shalt beat some of it, very small, and put it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation. Again, the idea, before the testimony, before the testimony, before the testimony. Why? Notice. Exodus 25, 21 says, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the... Interesting. So in the ark, you're now to put the testimony. So the tabernacle is called the tabernacle of testimony. The instruments are all put before the testimony. The labor is before the testimony. And the ark is the ark of the... So tell me, what's the most important thing in the sanctuary? Come on now. The most important thing in the sanctuary is the testimony. Now, what is the testimony? Let's see. Let's go a little bit further. Exodus 26, 33. And thou shalt hang upon the veil under the tatches that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the... So where is the ark of the testimony located? Where is it located? It's located in the most holy place. So you have, a, you have a separation. We have a holy place and you have a most holy place. And the most holy place is the most holy article, which is the most, the Ark of the Covenant that holds the Ark of the Testimony. Are you still with me? All we're doing right now, we're walking. And mind you, as we're walking like this, you should begin to understand the, the privilege and the responsibility that we who live in the church of the most holy place have. Let's go a little bit further. So in the ark, of course, you have the Ten Commandments. And there's also two other elements or two other articles in the ark. What are they? Aaron's rod, that button, and what else? Now, have you ever thought about why they are in the most holy place? Why didn't they just hang out in the holy, in the holy place? Why is one in this in the outer court? Why is the Aaron's rod that butted in the most holy place in the ark itself? Why is that? Chosen by God. In fact, watch this. We're talking about righteousness by faith, right? When they brought the rods, were the rods living or dead? They're completely dead. So the only rod that budded was the rod that God supernaturally put life into. So where there was no strength, no power, no ability to do right things, God says, I will use this. 
Why? Because the rod can receive no glory because it didn't have life in it in the first place. <coughs> Let me tell you something. Believe it or not, and I say this quietly, God will choose people in the last days to complete his work that have no trust in themselves. No trust in their abilities. No trust in their degrees. <coughs> no trust in their preaching ability or their teaching ability. Their whole life, everything they are, they, they attribute to God himself. And if God says go, they go. God says wait, they wait. These are the type of leaders that God would choose to work for him in the last days. That's why they're in the most holy place. Why the pot of manna? Why is the pot of manna in the most holy place? God provides. What did you say? Okay, it wasn't going to grow off the ground. True that. Now, remember, yes, God provides. It is a bread of life. Now, watch this. Again, we're just talking this morning. When did the manna stop falling for the children of Israel? When they arrived in Canaan. Tell me, what did the manna taste like? Honey, what was the land of Canaan called? The land of milk and So the manna was a type of heaven. Y'all not hear what I'm saying. And the manna in the most holy place never went old. Now, the most holy place experience teaches us then that God will be the supernatural sustainer of his people in the last hours of earth's history, they will not depend upon themselves. Everything in the most holy place is saying to us that God is king and we are merely his instruments. Wait, there's more. Mind you, the commandments here are written in stone. All right? We'll work it. We're going to work a little bit more. It says, and the Lord said unto Moses, bring Aaron's rod again before the, <laughs> to be kept for a token against the rebels. And thou shalt quiet, thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. Exodus 16, says, and Moses and Aaron, take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony. Notice here, Exodus 31, 18 says, and, God, and he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the... So tell me, why the testimony is so important? It is the only article that God literally wrote on. That's it. No other time did God write on something other than, let's go to other places. Then Daniel, he wrote on, this, on the wall, many, many tucking your farsing, thou waiting the balances of our wanting, and he wrote in the sand. And you know why he wrote in the sand, right? I didn't even bring this out yesterday, but you know why he wrote in the sand. Because if he wrote it in stone, the sins of those Pharisees would have been immortalized. 
He wrote it in sand so he could wipe it away. So Jesus writes his commands with his own finger on stone. Tell me, if God writes something on stone, what does, in order for it to change, who has to do it? And he's going to have to do it with another finger writing on some stone. Is that right? You can't just wipe that off. This is God's testimony. Now, I've been doing a lot of study. Like, I, I, I like to think about a lot of different things in regards to Scripture. One of the things that I found to be so profound as I began to study prophecy was that prophecy, everything in regards to prophecy hinges on the testimony. Do you know that your happiness in your home hinges on the testimony? Do you know that your finances, how you run them, prosperity or no prosperity, hinges on the testimony? Everything in regards to prosperity hinges on how you respond to this law. And Moses turned and went down the mount, and the two tables of testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both sides, and on the one side and on the other were they written. The tables were the work of God, and the writings were the writing of God. The testimony. Now let's go quickly. In the most holy place, I'll pass this, pass this, we'll pass this. Save some time. Oh, no, here. Exodus 25, verse 9. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it, speaking in regards to the sanctuary. And, he, and look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee, where, my friends? So at the time, at the time that the commandments were given, the same time the sanctuary pattern was given, simultaneously, boom, boom, given at the same time. Why? All right, let's pass this. We talked about this yesterday, right? God's law, his character, our reflection of himself. So this law is his testimony. His testimony is his character. They are synonymous. They are a reflection of him. It says the law of God, listen to this, the law of God is as sacred as God himself. It is a revelation of his will, a transcript of his character, the expression of divine love and wisdom. The harmony of creation, listen to this, the harmony of creation depends upon the perfect conformity of all beings, of everything, animate and what? To the law of the creator. God has ordained laws for the government, not only of living beings, but of all the operations of nature. So the laws of nature are also subject to the testimony. Are you following? Okay. Notice here, it's a revelation of his will, a transcript of his character, an expression of divine love and wisdom. This is amazing. Because notice it says, animate what does animate mean? What does inanimate mean? All of this is subject to his law. Let's go a little bit further. Everything is under fixed laws, which cannot be disregarded. But while everything in nature is governed by natural laws, man alone of all the inhabitants of the earth is amenable to moral law. Moral law. To man, the crowning work of creation, well, that's interesting, God has given power to understand his requirements. 
to comprehend the justice and beneficence of his law and its sacred claims upon him. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So man has, uh, is amenable to moral law. Now, not everything is amenable to moral law. This chair is not amenable to moral law. But humanity, we are amenable to moral law. This is important. To man, the, what's it say? Now, what is a crowning work? When somebody says something is crowning, what is that? It is, it is, it is the apex. It is the, it, is the, it is the top of the line. So when we were created, we were created in whose image, my friends? Wait, man, wait, 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 wait till we deal with that. And it says here, and of man, unswerving obedience is what? That's interesting. Why is it that man is required to have unswerving obedience? Now, do you think of your life when you're walking through your day that I'm going to be, I'm loyal to God all day? Like all day, I'm, my mind, I'm just... Is me and God all, do you think like that? Don't answer out loud. But I want you to process in your mind, who is, is God a convenience? Or is he your everything? Loyalty. That's big, man. And Satan doesn't believe that mankind can be loyal to God. He doesn't believe it. Now, I'm going to show you something, again, just so you can have it in your, in your the principle can be stayed in your mind. Proverbs 3.19 says, the Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth. By understanding hath he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down the dew. I want you to note that by wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, creation took place. You see that? So notice this, we have the Father, we have the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three working as a unit. This is love working as a unit. In this love working as a unit, a law is established that allows for the creation of this world. And you can't see the world, for some reason my graphics are disappearing. But that is supposed to be a world. Use your imagination. The world is established on this foundation of the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of God. The world is established. Now note, this was the verse we just read that's talked about the establishments of the world. And notice here, through wisdom is a house builded, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with precious and pleasant riches. The same things that were necessary to build the world are the same things that are necessary to build a home. Do you see it? The same foundational principles. So tell me, how many of you can create a world? That's none of us. So how many of you can create happy homes? That'll be none of us. It is supernatural. You just, yeah, he's, he's like waving, but not waving. <laughs> I see you, brother. It's like, I, yeah, no, well, maybe that's not what I meant. 
<laughs> I say this because we have to come into our understanding that of our natural selves, we do not know how to sustain that which is righteous without the righteous one. Do you understand what I'm saying? We can't build happy homes without God. We can't build happy worlds without God. I'm going to pass this because we're running out of time. The creation of man. What day did God create man? On the sixth day, God created man. On that day right there, he creates man. On the sixth day. On the seventh day, he rests. Now, the creation of man. I'm going to ask you a question. Hopefully, you'll give me some answers. Question. What was the nature of man before the fall? And what is God's purpose in creating mankind? So what was the nature of man before the fall? Anybody know? He was unfallen. He was perfect, right? So what was God's purpose in the creation of mankind? Anybody know? Communion, fellowship. Notice this. Genesis 1.26 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own, in the image of God created him, male and female created he them. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them blessed and blessed them and called their name Adam or Ish. In the, in the day when they were created. So when man was created, he was created in whose image? I wonder what that means. Notice here. When Adam came from the creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature a likeness to his maker. You thought when you were made in his image, you just thought you had the spiritual part, right? Did you know that when we were created, we were made to look like God? Y'all not hear what I'm saying. We're made physical, mental, and spiritual. So, mind you, think about it. God forms man into the dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He wakes up, his eyes open, Satan sees. Who does he see? He sees God. And remember, the devil hates God. So when he sees God formed, if you will, that an expression of the image of God there, he says, I can't get to that one, so I'm going to get to this one. Are you seeing it? So my mind says, okay, watch God's intent. Watch God's purpose in the creation of man. It says, and it was his purpose that the longer man lived, the more fully he should reveal his what? The more fully reflect the glory of the creator. So the purpose of God in the creation of man was so that man in fellowship will grow more and more into the image of God. Okay, you may think that has nothing to do with anything. Well, maybe it does. I don't know. Let's, I'm going to posit you another question. I give you one word to describe God. You only have one word, one chance. 
What word would you use to describe God? Love. That's, that was, I was looking for that. Somebody said faith. Like, we can go there too. Let's go with love. God is love. So the purpose of God in the creation of man was that mankind would grow more and more and more to reflect the image of love. That was his purpose. That was his intent. He did not intend for us to have all these problems and issues. It's not his purpose. But his purpose, his intent, when he created us was love. It was like this. It's like when, we, when I have, my wife and I got married, and I thought I was in love when I married her. I really did. I, I, I thought I was in love. And then we had a baby. And there was this new love that kind of just grew out. Like, I didn't even know what that was. That was come, it was like, wow, I love this. And literally, she could fit in my hand from here to here. That's how tiny she was. Now she's like this. But I'm thinking, okay, we brought this little one into the world. My intent now with her is we're going to shower her with love. I want her to be happy. I want to take her places. We want to enjoy things together. I want to talk to her. Now, for a while, we, you know, she was calling everything daddy. Everything was daddy. <laughs> this was daddy. This was daddy. Everything was daddy. <laughs> so when she, when she called me daddy, I didn't accept it. It's like, this is... This is not acceptable. <laughs> but one day, one day, there was a difference. I could tell she began to recognize me as daddy, and everything else was everything else. And she recognized who I was to her. I was her father. She was my daughter. There was a revelation there that began to develop. And I said, oh, okay, now this, this one's becoming somewhat intelligent, not quite there, but <laughs> developing. Now she's 10, going on 25. <laughs> and it's, it's so interesting. Now, I'm telling you this because I know that when you, when you get the point, you'll get it. I remember waking up one particular morning, and this is when she was younger, she was in the crib, and I remember walking over to the crib and looking over into the crib and saying, I love this baby. I love you, Niaja. She didn't even know. She's asleep. And then almost at, like in that moment in time that I'm saying that to her, God's spirit spoke to my mind and says, Andre, I say that over you every night, man. Every night. I love this boy. I'm still, my I'm still a boy to him. I can be 38, but he's like a gajillion. Now, I, I, I'm saying it, I'm, I'm talking to you right now because I want you to begin to understand when God forms man of the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life, he now looks like his creator. His intent now is to fellowship with his own creation, to develop this, this person, if you will, and help him become more and more like himself, which is only perfection, which is only love. So now, when you read in Genesis where it says, and it says, go to Genesis 126. I want to read this to you, but I want to read it to you with the translation of what you have in your mind right now. Genesis 126 says, and God said, Genesis 126. Yes. Yes. Genesis 126. 
Yeah, there, I don't, yeah, there's no Genesis 120. Genesis chapter 1, <laughs> verse 26. So it says, and God said, but let's replace God with the word love. Is that okay? Yeah. And love said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let love have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creature that creeps upon the earth. And so love created love in his own image. And the, and the image of love created he, him, male and female created he, them. So in the creation, God creates man and he is love and he puts love over all creation. And he tells love, now this is how love works. This is how love serves. This is how love approaches. But what happened? What happened? Watch this. So we read this. First John, love, love. We know what love is. Every day, you know you're supposed to read this chapter. You know that, right? We're instructed to read 1 Corinthians 13 every day. So put it in your to-do list. I'm going to pass this. I want to show you what happens in a moment. But here, Isaiah 43, 7 says, Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my... Remember, God's purpose in the creation of man. For I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Isaiah 46, 13 says, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. God creates man for his glory. So what is God's purpose in the creation of man? When Adam came from the creator's hand, I read that already, he bore in his physical mental, spiritual nature, a likeness to his maker. God created man in his own image. Thank you. And it was his purpose that the longer man lived, the more fully he would reveal the image, his image, and the more fully reflect the glory of his creator. God's purpose. Reveal this image. Reflect the glory of his creator. Mind you, I'm setting you up so bad right now, I just want you to know I'm setting you up. Just, I want you to know it. So when we do it, you can walk away here understanding exactly what we're supposed to be doing right now. Okay? So here we go. All his faculties were capable of, capable of development. Their capacity and vigor were continually to increase. Vast was the scope offered for their exercise. Glorious the field open to their research. The mysteries of the visible universe, the wondrous works of him, which is perfect in knowledge, invited man's study. Face to face, heart to heart, communion with his maker was his high privilege. You know, I, I read stories like, like where you talk about Moses going into a rock and then God passing by him or Joshua having to take his shoes off his feet because he's standing on holy ground. You know, stories like that. And I say, Father... You are no respecter of persons. Will you please help me have that experience? How many of you would just love to be in the presence of God? See, you have to put in your brain that these stories are not fictional. This is not Spider-Man or Batman, Iron Man or Pokemon. 
This is talking about the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is God's intent for his creation in regards to us, face-to-face -face communion. That's what he wants. But tell me, what is the one thing that separates face-to-face -face communion? Sin. So if sin is the only thing stopping me from having face-to-face -face communion with God, then we need to figure out how to get sin out of the equation. Does that make sense, everybody? And in my mind, as I'm walking through this, there are people that literally have a problem with what I'm saying to you right now. Do you know that? People would rather stay in their sins and still be saved. Because they treat salvation from the same mindset of selfishness. I want to be saved and I still want to do me. Somebody says, is that salvific? Is it salvific? If I, if I do this, is it salvific? <laughs> it is salvific. The question isn't whether or not if it's salvific. The question is, do you love Jesus? Will this please your master? Will this bring glory to his name? Not, is it salvific? <laughs> Notice the fallen man. Genesis 3, you know the story. Now, had he remained loyal to God, all this would have been his, how long? Throughout eternal ages, he would have continued to gain new treasures of knowledge to discover fresh springs of happiness and to obtain clearer and yet clearer conceptions of the wisdom, the power, and the love of God. More and more fully would he have fulfilled the objects of his creation, more and more fully have reflected the creator's glory. But instead, disobedience. Disobedience equals image distortion. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We're created in the image of God, made to look like him, made to talk like him, to be like him. But when we turn from God, then the image that God intended for us to retain is now distorted. So what's the object? Notice this. Disconnection equals image distortion. Disobedience equals image distortion. Disconnection equals image distortion. Question, are you connected? The issue is being connected. The issue is making sure that there's nothing in your experience that is blocking fellowship with God. That's the issue. Because at the end of the day, God wants to do something supernatural in us. We are that dry rod. We are that lifeless component that God says, I will take that which is nothing and bring supernatural reflection of my character through that. This is the generation in which we live. The most holy place experience. But wait, I'm going to show you something else. It was the will of God that Adam and Eve should not know evil. Well, that's interesting. The knowledge of good had been freely given them, but the knowledge of evil, of sin, of its results, of its wearing toil, of anxious care, of disappointment and grief, of pain and death, this was in love, what? This was before sin. But what, what is present now? Knowledge of sin is present now, yes? The results are present now, yes? 
wearing toil, present now, yes? Anxious care, present now, yes? Disappointment and grief, is that present? Pain and death, is it present? So let me say, this is in love allowed. It's allowed now. So you should ask me, why? Go ahead, ask me. Why? Thanks for asking. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you asked. We're going to explore that concept as we go a little bit further. Let me pass that. Restoration of the image of God, you need to be re-educated. Watch. Let's read a couple of passages. How much, what's my time like? Ten minutes? This is apostasy, my friends. <laughs> Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read verse 28 and 29. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his. Tell me, what is God's purpose? To restore the image of God. That means the more closely we have fellowship and communion, the more and more we begin to look like him. We are called to that purpose. Okay? Verse 29. For what? Is that what I read? Yeah, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. To be conformed to the what? To the conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. So what's God's intent? That we be conformed to the image of his? That's his intent. Let's go a little bit further. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In fact, if a couple of people can go ahead of me and grab some verses, then you can read them out loud, and then we can just move faster. That way we move faster than the prophetic time that's here. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 says, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same, same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The idea is that we are to begin to be reformed or changed back into the image that God intended. Are you following the idea? Let's go another one. Let's just pick one. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10. The Bible says, And put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Do you see it? In other words, every verse that I have here talks about God's intent to restore an image back into man. And as you walk into the most holy place, as you go into this, this room where only perfection uh, 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 abides, we are then to be transformed into the image of God. It's in that room that God's law is right there. Let's go a little bit further. Satan, with his fierce temptations, wrung the heart of Jesus. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. <laughs> Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave of conqueror or tell him of the father's acceptance of his sacrifice. 
He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be, what's the word? This is what Jesus as a man is going through on Calvary. Christ felt the anguish which the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. So this is happening at Calvary, okay? So I just want you to get in your mind. When you see Jesus on Calvary and he's dying there and he's agonizing there, he's actually feeling the weight of all the sins of humanity at one time in one place. Every sin you committed, every sin you think about committing, every sin that you're going to commit, he felt in that one concentrated time in one place as a man. Now, mind you, I have another quotation that says that the cross is a reflection to our dull senses what God has been feeling from, from the beginning of time. The cross is a manifestation. In other words, it's letting you see for the first time God's bleeding heart, if you will. I think about this and I'm, I want you to keep pondering this. I'm gonna show you something else. Now this, this is at the cross. In other words, at the cross, this is what Jesus is feeling. And at the cross, this is what's about to transpire. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a, what's the word? Murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. I thought that's an interesting word to use. Sympathies? You ever heard of the song Sympathy of the, uh, was it Sympathy of the Devil? Sympathy for the Devil? There's a song written by a rock guy. Rolling Stones, Beatles? Beatles? All right, you know a lot about that. <laughs> Okay, I'm just saying. All right, sympathy for the devil. The sympathies of heavenly beings are rooted now. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer awake the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and and the heavenly world was what? So, open your Bible. I'm going to show you where that is in Revelation chapter 12. Notice in Revelation chapter 12, I'm going to try to round this out here in a moment. We're going to start reading at verse number 11. Start at verse 10. Verse 10 says, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God. How often? This verse was fulfilled at Calvary. Verse 11 says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens. And ye that dwell in them, but notice the next part, 
Woe to the inhabitants of what? The earth and the sea. Why? For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth he hath but eight. So, at Calvary, angels in heaven is like, we ain't got nothing. You know what? We fully understand this, this, this numbskull, rotten, murdering. Why would you kill the Son of God? He's never done anything wrong. He's never lied, cheated, still. He never committed adultery. Why, why, are, you, why are you beating on Jesus? What? 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 And these angels finally in their brain, because at some level, they still probably had a little bit of something for him. Like, maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe at the cross, that's over. No more sympathy. But wait till I show you the next quotation. This was actually quite disturbing. Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. At the cross, the principles at stake were to be more fully, what's it say? So the principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. What would that be? And for the sake of, what does it say? Hmm. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. I tell you the truth, when I first read that sentence, I cried. What do you mean for the sake of man, Satan says, I don't want him alive for my sake. <laughs> for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. It says, man as well as angels must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must Choose whom he will serve. Now, wait a second. You see, when I read these things, I'm not a theorizer. In other words, I don't like theological arguments without practical application. So this is what I did. I read it again. But when I read it, I want you to read it like I read it, but not with my name, but with yours. Watch. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. Angels did not even understand fully. The principles at stake were more fully to be revealed. And for the sake of, what's his name? Andre. You know, Andre means man. Why don't you put your name there? For the sake of, put your name there. Would you dare put your name there? Put your name there. I need my name erased. I need to get to a point where it's no longer necessary for Satan's existence to be. But the Bible says, know ye not, Romans 6, 16 says, know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Every time we sin, knowingly and willfully. I'm not talking about accidental that you didn't know. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about willful, intentional, you know this is wrong. And you say, God understands. It's only a little. Every time we say that, God says, okay, 
I will let the adversary continue to show you why this is not a good idea. <laughs> For if God gave us what we deserved immediately, the wages of sin is what? So God does not give us death immediately. What he allows us to feel, what he, listen, disease, if I were to define disease, disease is an effort of nature to free the systems from conditions that have resulted from the violation of the laws of health. So when I get a disease, it's actually a blessing. Y'all not hear what I'm saying? If I'm sniffling, and I have been, or I have a sore throat, and I've had that, it tells me at some level, some place, I have violated law. But the natural response to sin is immediate death. That is what's supposed to happen. But because of the cross, I only suffer disease so I can get it in my mind. Hey, why don't I follow the law? Suffering is now necessary because we're so hard-headed. We're hard-headed. Else, God could have just been like, let's let everything stay beautiful. Let's let the trees continue to flourish. Let the animals, because our nature, if everything remained perfect and we were in our fallen state, then we would see no need to change. That's why God blocked the tree. He said, don't let them eat from the tree of life because then sin would have been immortalized. So allow suffering, allow pain. Don't give them the full consequence of their sin. Give them time to recognize that this violation will eventually end in, in death. That's love, friends. That's love. He don't give me what I deserve off top. That's love. Just think about the last time you was doing your dirt. Angels are just protecting you. Just like, don't, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't give them what they deserve yet. Hold on, hold on. They're going to wake up. Let, allow a little bit more pain. They'll, they'll see. Man. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Andre, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. Andre must choose whom he will serve. Are you seeing it, my friends? It's time for me to stop. Satan was exalting that he succeeded in debasing the image of God and humanity. Then Jesus came to, rest then Jesus came to restore in man the image of his maker. None but who? None but Christ can fashion anew the character that has been ruined by sin. He came to expel the demons that have controlled the will. He came to lift us up from the dust to reshape the marred character after the pattern of his divine character and to make it beautiful with his own glory. This is the gospel. It's not just about saving me from the penalty of sin. It's talking about restoring me back to what he intended from the very beginning. That's why, you know, Revelation 13. It says right here in Revelation 13. And they wish the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. 
And the wish of the beast saying, who is likened to the beast? Who is able to make war with him? It says that. And then jump down a little further. It says, and I beheld another beast coming out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and he spake like a dragon. And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him and caused the earth and them that dwelled therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And watch carefully. And he doeth great wonders so that he make a fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth, the, the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast saying, watch what he says. That they should make an image to the beast. which had a wound by the sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not wish of the image should be killed. I said, do you see the text? Direct contrary to Genesis, where God got on the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul. The counterfeit movement is simply a distortion of the image. While the world is making an image to the beast, the body of Christ should be reflected in the image of his son. It's not only about a day. It's about the God of that day. It's about the demonstration of the power of the creator in a broken people. And my friends, I tell you the truth. The devil thinks he has this thing hemmed up. He had, it's almost like, he's like, let them have their, the, you know, the little conference, the little shop thing, you know what I'm saying? When they get in their car and they go home, I got them. I know what they got on their iPod. I know what they watch on YouTube. I know the real. Like, here, you protected. Like, you ain't even got Wi-Fi. Everybody's like, oh, Wi-Fi. Oh, I can't function. <laughs> The, devil, the devil's not playing, man. He knows he has how much time? And in his short time, he's saying, I am not going to let anybody in this room, including that guy preaching, reflect the image of Jesus. I got them. I want him to be a liar. You know the devil's a liar, right? Jesus can do abundantly above whatever we ask or think. Jesus is our solution for every problem in our life. You see a faulty church, God sees it true. You see a broken people, God sees it too. But God is so much better than us. He loves this broken church. He loves this faulty people. And he says, I will restore that which has been broken. I'll breathe life into that which is out, there has no life in it at all. My friends, I only have one, one appeal today. Simple. How many of you want to be restored into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? If that's your prayer, go with me to our knees and let's talk to the Master. Let's enter into the most holy place. Father, our time has been 
been well spent. Your testimony, Lord, you desire to write in our hearts. Your plan is so perfect. Your love is so amazing. Father, we don't want the devil to exist for us. Father, we want our final decision to be you and you alone. Show us, Lord, how to see Jesus. Show us how to love him because we don't really love him like we should. We've heard preaching so long, it's just kind of, it's just preaching. But Father, please work a miracle on us. Even now, Father, you've come to expel the demons from the will. Please expel them, Father. We're so tired. But your strength is made perfect in weakness. Please work out your perfection inside of us, Lord. And when the devil presents our great sins, Lord, please present your great son. We love you, Lord. And Father, we pray that you take our hearts, for we cannot give them. They are your property. Keep them, for we cannot keep them for thee. Save us from ourselves our weak, unchristlike selves. And mold us, Lord, into the character and the person, into the atmosphere of your sweet love. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, and we claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.